Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Episode 11, The Prince of This World versus the King of the Jews. Last time, in our episode on Paul, we examined the wide range of demonic and quasi-demonic powers that the Apostle saw opposing his preaching of the gospel at the dawn of a new age. The multiplicity of demonic opponents also applies in some of the gospels we have treated thus far, like Mark and Matthew. Both of these feature Satan in an apparently preeminent role, but so much of the battle between good and evil takes place in Jesus' dramatic exorcisms. This week, that all changes, even though we are still reading the same New Testament, just a different set of books. We're going to be talking about the Johannine sources in the New Testament, especially the Gospel of John, also known as the Fourth Gospel. In these sources, there are few mentions of exorcism or demonic possession, and the one supernatural opponent Jesus needs to reckon with is the devil or Satan. No powers, principalities, elemental spirits, or horny angels, just one cosmic foe. But is it a mustachioed man in a red suit with horns and hooves? We'll see. The first thing I want to do is introduce the Gospel of John and walk through some key moments when the devil shows up and what it means for the bigger picture. The devil is not an extraneous feature of the text, but rather he is centrally important for its major themes. After that, we will discuss some controversies surrounding the representation of evil in the gospel, especially its treatment of the Jewish people, and John's troubling claim that they are the children of the father of lies. There's a lot of work to do there. Finally, we will consider the Johannine material's relationship to the other sources for this pod, especially the Dead Sea Scrolls, as a way of probing into the meaning of dualism in these texts. And finally, we will consider whether the scholarly construction of a Johannine community is mere mythology. The prologue of the Gospel of John sets up a lot of the story we're going to be telling this week. Jesus appears as the incarnation of a divine word that was in the beginning with God and was God. With and was, huh? Tell me more. This divine word, or as the 16th century humanist Erasmus phrased it, this divine speech, the Logos, appears as the source of light and life. But immediately, this being of light is confronted by the darkness of our world. You can see where the dualistic reputation of this text stems from, but it's also a retelling of the Genesis story in which God separates light from the darkness. The word receives yet another epithet in this introduction. Son of God. And it is this Son of God, the divine word made flesh, who comes into the world to save humanity from the forces of darkness. But it's going to be tricky. The world, consumed in darkness, refuses to recognize the bringer of light. Now, this beginning is completely different than anything else we've read so far in the rest of the Gospels in the New Testament. It appears to rely on different sources, though clearly it has some things in common with the other three Gospels, known as the Synoptic Gospels, because they see together or share a tradition of stories about Jesus. The author of John knows some of these stories, but also some others. And it seems that the decision to drop the demon exorcism stories was a deliberate choice, a prioritization of another view of cosmic evil. So what perspective does John take when it comes to spying the devil? The first use of the word devil appears in a situation that sheds some light on this question. In chapter 6, Jesus is attempting to explain to his followers what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood 
in order to attain eternal life. So much of the action of John revolves around spiritual insight, or the lack thereof, into Jesus' teachings and the necessity of believing him as a cosmic savior and unique son of God. But this thing with the flesh and the blood, it's a big ask. It's not really clear what it means, and Jesus is not always inclined to spell it out for those listening. After some followers are scandalized by the cannibalism motif, Jesus asks his closest disciples if they wish to abandon him as well. Peter protests, but Jesus, apparently frustrated, remarks that he picked these disciples himself. Yet, he says, one of you is a devil. He means Judas Iscariot, as the text explains, the treacherous disciple who gives Jesus up to the authorities. Now, Judas doesn't look like a demon or the devil. He's just a guy. So how can he be a devil or even the devil? I'm just going to quote from the part of the text where we get a clear picture of what's going on. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, like, who's going to betray you? So while reclining next to Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. After he, Judas, received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, Do quickly what you were going to do. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the common purse, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So what are we to make of this offered sop of bread that Jesus gives to Judas. It's a dramatic gesture for the reader who is hovering close by and Peter who witnesses this revealing gesture while the rest of the disciples are in the dark. And the darkness is literal and also sort of metaphysical. Nightfall signals that we are entering a time and space in which the powers of evil are exalted. And yes, I'm going to keep quoting the Hound of the Baskervilles. As for the devil, we see in the scene how Satan enters Judas. It reminds me of the demonic pneumatology of the exorcist or hereditary. The evil swoops in and takes possession. But the scene also affirms Jesus' self-possession. He gets the last word in. It's like, do what you gotta do. Just make it fast, bub. Somehow, I'm imagining Jesus talking like Wolverine from the X-Men. So the devil works in a couple of ways inspiring Judas's treachery and greed earlier on, and also possessing him in a more direct way in chapter 13. Both are crucial for the diabology of the fourth gospel. Satan operates through people. Satan never confronts Jesus or the reader face to face, but always in the guise of human beings taking over by the darkness of the world. The devil works through human beings, never appearing as a standalone character in the Johannine materials. But what determines whether the devil is working through you or not? One of the harshest confrontations between Jesus and his critics happens in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. From chapter 5 on, the narrator reports that the Jews were trying to have Jesus killed because he worked healing miracles on the Sabbath. That is, when no work is supposed to be done. And because he kept referring to God as his father, thus claiming some sort of divinity for himself. Periodically in the gospel, there will be mention of an attempt on Jesus' life, and I think this growing threat of assassination is even more prevalent in John than in other gospels. 
What's really controversial about the way this gospel narrates the dangers to Jesus' life is the way it names the Jews as responsible. But who are the Jews in John? For starters, Jews translate the Greek word Judeoi, which means Judeans, people living around Jerusalem, as opposed to Jews living in different parts of the region. In other texts, it can just mean people who adhere to Judaism. It's pretty confusing. By the second to third century of the Common Era, the term Judeoi had a much broader semantic reach. And any translation of Judeoi is really complicated. To render it as just Judeans is to interrupt the continuity between the ancient inhabitants of Judea and people who practice Judaism up to the present. And conversely, to render it as simply Jews is to assert continuity. Going with Judeans can be seen as tidying up the anti-Jewish aspects of the New Testament, as if to say, Christians were never really anti-Jewish, they were against those Judeans, which seems a little too convenient. Many scholars think that the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John were written in a Jewish or, you know, partially Jewish context, though most likely not in Judea itself. The text contains accurate descriptions of observances such as ritual hand-washing, Sukkot, Hanukkah, Passover. The fact that the text goes to the trouble of explaining these things shows that it does not assume its readers have any acquaintance with them. We'll get into this in more detail later, but the dominant paradigm for interpreting this gospel is to see it as stemming from the Johannine Church, which is a community of Jewish members of the Jesus Movement Gospel who were expelled from the synagogue as a result of their allegiance. There are some clues for this in the gospel. Scholars think that the term Jew is used in a more neutral sense in parts of the gospel that they think are older. But after the dramatic confrontation between Jesus and some would-be Jewish followers in chapter 8, there is an offhand reference in chapter 9 to the danger of Jesus' followers being put out of the synagogues for confessing Jesus to be the Messiah. New Testament scholars see this as a clue to a historical development. This is all hypothetical. This Johannian community has been driven out or withdrawn from the broader synagogue community, much in the same way as the Essenes did at Qumran. Now, this is an anachronism in the text of the Gospel of John. As best as we can tell, the split between the church and the synagogue happens quite a bit later than when Jesus was living. The Gospel of John was written around 100 of the Common Era, so several decades go by until this polarization seems to take place. But as is so often the case with biblical texts, the authors push their own politics further back in time to enshrine its significance in sacred history. So what, what the hell even happens in chapter 8? The Pharisees have brought a woman convicted of adultery and asked Jesus to weigh in on what should be done with her. This is the scene of the famous, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, that whole bit. Then Jesus predicts his death, which must be a real bummer for the disciples. It's easy to imagine hanging out with Jesus and feeling like, ah, here he goes again with this nihilistic bullshit. And after this prediction, he promises that those who believe in him will be free from the slavery of sin. And some of those who are there listening, their ears perk up, and they think, wait a second, we've always been free. We're not slaves. We're descendants of Abraham. Moses led our ancestors out of Egypt. What is this you're promising? 
Jesus opts for intensifying the antagonism, which, I don't know, isn't always the best way to approach these teachable moments. If you were Abraham's children, he says, you would act like it. You don't act as Abraham would. You keep trying to kill me. But guess what? You are staying true to your real ancestor. And I'll quote from the gospel here. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. As you might imagine, it didn't go over quite so well. But before leaping ahead, I want to draw out a few of these details. The devil appears as a murderer from the beginning, suggesting a kind of eternal quality to Satan's evilness. This will be something that theologians like Augustine, who are committed to this idea that Satan fell from the angelic ranks, have to twirl themselves into knots to make sense of. And it's clearly a moment where we see some dualistic potential in this gospel. Fatherhood appears prominently in this scene. We get the famous father of lies epithet for the devil, but we can see how it links back to this discussion of authentic patrilineage. After receiving this tongue lashing, those who oppose Jesus in this moment, who start out as being referred to as the Pharisees, morph into the Jews when they were spoken of by the narrator. These Jews accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. They call him a Samaritan, that is to say, another ethnic group in the region who practice a different form of religion centered on Yahweh or God. Earlier in the book, Jesus crosses over into Samaria to converse with a character referred to simply as the Samaritan woman. The accusation of possession against Jesus serves as the only instance where the spiritual danger is referenced in John. However, as I will explain a little bit later, it's not the only time exorcism is actually referred to. Hold on to your seats, folks. It's going to be a bumpy ride. At the end of this confrontation, Jesus trolls the Pharisees some more. Now, you know, as I've said, being referred to as Judeoi or the Jews, by mentioning some previous acquaintance with the thoroughly ancient Abraham, sort of saying, I know the old dude's proud of me, wherever he is. Whereas the text puts it, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus' declaration of I am is not innocuous here. The gospel's high Christology, the exalted divine status it attributes to Jesus, actually echoes a key moment in Jewish scripture, the story of the burning bush from Exodus, when Moses is sent back to Egypt to free the children of Israel. And when he's getting these instructions, he asks Yahweh in whose name he goes to deliver the chosen people. And God replies, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the Israelites that I am has sent me to you. This is in Exodus 3.14. And it seems like maybe not a huge coincidence that Jesus uses the construction I am more times in the Gospel of John than in any of the other Gospels. 46 times to be precise. And not casually either. It's not I am hungry, but more like I am the resurrection and the life. This deliberate emphasis on the I am's cites the language spoken by God. And it's not done in secret among just the disciples, but in front of Jesus' own opponents, the people who are trying to convict him of blasphemy. He is positioning this echoing claim of divinity deliberately as a stumbling block. 
it's clear that practically everyone present, including Jesus, is a Jew. So how should we make sense of the generic and pernicious recourse to the Jews that happens so frequently in this gospel? In the 20th and 21st centuries, scholars have argued that the Jews are a mere symbol for evil without any real link to an ethnic or religious group, in that Jesus is speaking specifically to the evil intentions of specific people who happen to be Jews. Or they say that the fourth gospel represents merely an intra-Jewish conflict, which is supposed to be contextualized and qualify what appears to contemporary readers as naked anti-Semitism. It is, of course, verses such as those just described or the representation of Jewish responsibility in John's passion narrative, that is, the story of Jesus' persecution and death, that have given rise to centuries of anti-Semitic violence, especially around Holy Week in spring, the time in the Christian liturgical year when the death and the resurrection of Christ is commemorated. For my part, I see the use of the term the Jews as deliberately producing ambiguity. And here I'm following the editors of the Jewish Annotated New Testament who point out that this use of Jews pressures the reader to make a choice, to distance herself from all the different possible reference for the Jews. It creates an us and them, so to speak. These editors see this as a consistent strategy of anti-Jewishness across the text, though they think that the Jewish beliefs rather than Jewish ethnicity are what is most at stake for John, since presumably some of the members of the Johannine community were Jews themselves, Jesus is assumed to be Jewish, etc. But that didn't stop it from becoming a major source of ethnic and racial hatred. Jesus does say that salvation comes from the Jews in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John when speaking to the Samaritan woman. But we can see this metaphor of coming from as playing into a supersessionistic dynamic, something I discussed last time with the ideas of New and Old Testaments. It's like it's coming from the Jews, but it's been updated and perfected through Christian theology. Yeah. I see this connecting to the epithet King of the Jews, that gets attached to Jesus during his trial before Pontius Pilate. With this accusation, Jesus becomes an insurrectionist. But when recruiting disciples at the start of the gospel, Nathaniel proclaims that Jesus is the king of Israel. References to Israel and Israelites in the text receive a more thoroughly positive valuation than references to the Jews. It's a way of marking a spiritual hierarchy among the characters of the gospel, all of whom, for the most part, we would consider to be Jews. The rhetorical strategy is thus to claim the best parts of the Jewish tradition for the Johannine readership and reject the rest as the doctrine of demons. Some of the force of the anti-Semitic elements of the Gospel of John come from its dualism, its tendency to paint the world as good and evil, light and dark, us versus them. So it's important to ask, where does the dualism in the text come from? Scholars in the mid-20th century were super excited about recent discoveries in some caves at Qumran, inhabited by a Jewish separatist group called the Essenes. See episode 4 for more background on the Dead Sea Scrolls. These early Dead Sea Scrolls scholars pointed to the dualism found in the texts there as a possible source for dualism in the Gospel of John and the Johannine epistles, that is, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. 
The only problem is that further scholarship found that the parallels between John and Qumran are not exclusive to Qumran sources. In other words, the common terms and other linguistic features show up in other literature, Jewish apocalyptic texts, early Christian sources, biblical sources, rabbinic texts, etc. How did those scholars miss that? In part, because they didn't know that not all the texts discovered at Qumran were sectarian texts. Imagine a Catholic church that splits off from Roman Catholicism to form a new religion that claims that unicorns are real and that the only true sacrament is scrolling through social media, liking pictures of unicorns. Such a group would still have Bibles in their library, but also sacred unicorn texts. This mix of orthodox materials from before the split and unicorn literature from after the split is similar to what was found at Qumran, which means that some of those initial similarities between the Gospel of John and Qumran documents merely prove that John was similar to other Palestinian Jewish groups, not necessarily to the sectarians. New scholarship has also shown that the late Essenes were not radical dualists, so it seems even less likely that they could have influenced the writers of Johannine literature. The mid-20th century scholars who got some of this stuff wrong did, however, reach a conclusion that is still correct, that Johannine theology has a thoroughly Jewish character, even though, as one scholar put it, this appears to have been a case of drawing the correct conclusion from the wrong evidence. It wasn't the sectarian lit that was uniquely similar to the Johannine literature. It was the broader set of Palestinian Jewish sources that is proper evidence for this claim. So we are left not with Johannine literature derived from a sectarian group of Essenes, but instead based in part on the dualisms native to Palestinian Jewish sources. In spite of the problematic references to Eudioi that Klaus discussed, it's also the case that Johannine literature in its sources has strong Jewish influences, and that raises questions about the text's anti-Semitism. Up to the present, the dominant paradigm has been that both the gospel and the letters, all three of them, attributed to John, were the products of a community of gospel-adhering Jews who found themselves pushed out of the synagogue, radically at odds with the world around them, and thus ideologically charged with dualism. But did such a community actually exist? It turns out, although this has been the scholarly consensus for a few decades, that the evidence is rather flimsy. The Gospel of John and the Three Letters are not similar enough to have been written by the same author, but they bear enough resemblance to necessitate one of two explanations. Ergo, most scholars have said, there must have been a community of like-minded, perhaps Jewish, Jesus followers, who shared the theological views propounded in John's Gospel, and that a few different authors from this community, who shared a liturgical and theological language because they belonged to the same community, wrote these works. And that, supposedly, explains the similarities between them. Hugo Mendez, however, recently argued that it makes more sense to say that the similarities between the Gospel and the Epistles of John can be better explained as a chain of what Mendez calls literary forgeries that don't require some theoretical shared community. The authors of the Johannine epistles could have just copied off the gospel and each other. That was common practice in the time period, and despite the charged word forgeries that Mendez uses, the practice was considered perfectly acceptable, something between a kind of literary homage and a strategy for getting an audience. Since the whole idea of a Johannine community was a house of cards stacked on the literary resemblances between the gospel and the letters, where does that leave us? The texts show evidence of Jewish-Palestinian influence, but we don't have a particular Jewish community out of which they emerged. 
I suppose the next questions around the gospel's links to anti-Semitism and Jewishness then become questions of reception. Who picked up these texts and liked what they read? And what does that say about Judaism and anti-Semitism in early Christian communities that read and approved of John and the Johannine epistles? But as for the authors of the Gospel of John and the epistles, we can't assume a community of like-minded folks anymore. But for now, let's get back to the Gospel of John and the character of Satan. As we've seen, the devil operates through human agents in this gospel, like Judas and the Pharisees. But this also applies to politicians in John. Now, you may have heard, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's from the Synoptic Gospels, or recall last week how Paul groups together political rulers with the quasi-demonic powers and principalities. So how does the author or authors of John address this topic? Throughout the second half of the gospel, Jesus speaks of his impending victory over the prince of this world. He links this victory to the death on the cross he foresees for himself. Travis and I puzzled over this concept a bit last time. How does a bloody, humiliating death allow Jesus to beat the devil or whoever the prince of this world is? Now, according to one prevalent theory, known as ransom theory, the devil has rights over humanity up until Jesus tricks him into using his lethal powers against one who at once mediates for humanity while not being bound by all of the sins and problems that humanity has experienced since its fall. In the language of John, Christ's victory over the devil and his judgment of the world, to use his words, are the moment when Satan will be driven out of his ruling position. Remember how there are no exorcisms in John? Well, this is the moment when the verb to be driven out, or ex balo, is the exact verb for exorcising demons in other texts we've talked about so far. So instead of many exorcisms, like in the Gospel of Mark, there is to be one grand cosmic exorcism on the cross. The epithet prince of this world signals an intimacy with politics, this idea of worldliness and, of course, princeliness. The devil is a prince or ruler, archon in the original Greek, who dominates human affairs. But in this gospel in particular, it is the Jews, as we've talked about before, that is the Pharisees and the elite priests of the Temple of Jerusalem who are conspiring to have Jesus arrested and killed. They seem to be the primary political movers and shakers, but there's still a secular political power they need to clear things with. Their deadly business with Jesus ultimately requires the approval of Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator of Judea. Being a procurator means being a governor of a minor province in the Roman Empire. The Romans took power in Judea in around 60 BCE when Pompey the Great expanded the Roman Empire into Asia. Pontius Pilate is an enigmatic figure in the Gospels, and depictions of him range from the embodiment of Roman imperial injustice to what we get in John, which is a more sympathetic, almost philosophical person. Pilate is really just kind of bemused that Jesus won't say the right things to get himself out of the mess that he's in. He also seems genuinely curious about who Jesus is and skeptical of the charges that have been trumped up against him. At the same time, Pilate sort of fans the flames of controversy. He keeps asking the crowd of 
who's been whipped up by Jesus's religious rivals, whether they mean for him to crucify their king. There's just a lot of trolling going on in this gospel. And this, this trolling works them up into a fury. I almost think Pilate is enjoying exposing the absurdity of the Judean elites. I just can't find any charges against your king. Like, what's your problem? It's as if Pilate thinks Jesus has as good a claim as anyone to being leader of this group. And that's why he keeps insisting on using the epithet king of the Jews when referring to Jesus. Pilate's sarcasm starts to fade after Jesus' accusers explain that he needs to die because he's been going by the name Son of God and committing heinous blasphemy. For some reason, this really freaks Pontius Pilate out, and he goes back to interrogating the controversial rabbi by saying, where are you from? And there's silence. Jesus has already explained that his kingdom is not of this world, and neither, it would seem, is he. Then Pilate said to him, and I'm quoting here, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. There's a pretty well-known Roman phobia of kings going back a long ways. What's weird is that when Jesus explains matter-of-factly to Pilate that his power over life and death stems from a higher source, a source that Jesus controls in some sense, then Pilate takes this message to heart and tries to stop the execution. Jesus still maintains that Pilate has sinned, but not as much as the ones who handed him over to the governing authorities. The crowd browbeats Pilate into continuing with the punishment, going back to this idea of Jesus as a would-be royal usurper. Pilate sticks to his bit, having the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, attached to the cross. And this is the familiar I-N-R-I, in-re, you see on crucifixes, which is a Latin acronym for the name and title I just said above. The temple authorities protest this title, but Pilate doesn't budge. And it's strange at this moment where he shows the most backbone. God forbid he, you know prevent this lynching from happening. I've dragged out the whole King of the Jews business to build up the contrast between the King of the Jews and the Prince of this world. How seriously should we take the title King of the Jews? In the story, Jesus seems to have taken it seriously enough. Earlier in this gospel, after the miraculous sign of the feeding of the 5,000 people, Jesus flees the crowd because he senses that they will make him king, the wrong kind of king you know, like the normal kind. During the interrogation with Pilate, he answers the rather sarcastic question, are you the king of the Jews this way? You say, I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? Yeah, I mean, what is it, man? Pilate sounds like a stoned philosophy undergraduate. Jesus says, for this I was born. It's like the reason I'm here, man. He seems to be owning the title then, the title of king. But his identity as king blends with that of witness, a testifier to the truth. At the same time, Jesus holds sway over those who belong to the truth, 
They listened to his voice, suggesting his position of authority, maybe royal authority. Earlier in this gospel, Jesus already described himself as the truth, the life, and the way. That is to say, those who belong to Jesus, the truth, as the word, listen to him, follow him, and serve in a kingdom that is not of this world. To be king of the Jews, then, means to do combat with the prince of this world, but with tactics that are not of this world. It means to adopt messianic royal language of authority from Jewish traditions while erasing most of their common signifiers. It means to bind to cosmically oriented dualism between this world and the world above. This age and the coming age appear to be less central, so there's sort of less of the structure of apocalypticism we've seen before, like in Enoch or maybe in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It also makes it different from Paul's apocalyptic thinking, too. But on the other hand, the identification between Satan and worldly power does bring this political theology into proximity to the thought world of the apostle to the Gentiles. Both see a judgment, a triumph over the powers of evil in the world with Jesus' death on the cross. It's odd how in John, it is one of the foremost representatives of the evil empire, Pontius Pilate, who confesses, albeit sardonically and trollingly, that Jesus is the king of the Jews, a king who stands in opposition to the very power upholding Pilate's empire. But what's that? Didn't Jesus explain to Pilate that his authority in this world is granted from above? That sounds like God, right? And this this throws us back into what I think is the central question of the podcast. Is God like some cynical spy service propping up the very governments that are supposed to be their enemies? Is the prince of this world simply God's puppet if all power finds its origin in divinity? Or is it that some forms of government are God-ordained and some are just plain evil? In John, it could appear that the Roman pure creator might represent the former, and the high priests and the Pharisees, the latter. At the same time, Jesus says that Pilate's sin is merely less extreme than that of those who handed him over to be executed. In that case, he's still the prince of this world, or maybe the princeling of this world. Nevertheless, there is this real ambivalence about Pilate in the Christian tradition. Later, anti-Christian philosophers like Nietzsche see Pilate as the one character in the whole New Testament with any kind of psychological depth. Though I would say, come on, Paul, Jesus. Some early Christian traditions imagine Pilate and his wife as deeply sympathetic to Jesus. But relevant to this discussion of whether Pilate represents the forces of evil or just something less extreme, I want to close out the episode with a story from an apocryphal early Christian source, The Death of Pilate. And by apocryphal, I mean it's not included in any uh, official canonical collection of scriptures. So in the story, the Roman emperor, Tiberius, is suffering from a deadly illness. He hears about the miracle-working Jesus and sends for the thaumaturge in order to be healed of his condition. He dispatches his agent Volusian to track Jesus down in Judea, but arriving in Jerusalem, Volusian learns of Jesus' execution and Pilate's role in that death. Pilate asserts that the execution was just justice being served. A little bit stymied, Volusian happens to bump into one of Jesus' followers, Veronica, who is famous for the Veronica Shroud, which is an image of Christ's face imprinted onto a piece of cloth. Veronica 
assures Belusium that if Tiberius were just to gaze upon this image with devotion, he would be healed. Being a really helpful person, she sets off at once with him for Rome to accomplish this deed. They get there, the healing works, and Volusian explains that they needed to go through all these measures because Pontius Pilate had the original holy man killed out of wickedness. Well, you can imagine what Tiberius said. Get Pilate in my office now. The procurator is sent for, and he appears, but he's got a trick up his sleeve. There's a real cloth fetish in this, this story. For Pilate appears, this is kind of ghoulish, wearing Jesus' seamless tunic, the one the Roman soldiers cast lots for at the scene of the crucifixion. And gosh, Tiberius just can't bring himself to get angry with this guy. This Jesus cosplay keeps Pilate alive for some time until Tiberius is advised by some pious Christian or maybe just the Holy Spirit to strip the tunic from Pilate as he stands in the emperor's presence. Immediately, with the seamless tunic cast off, righteous wrath fills Tiberius. He now understands that the tunic belonged to Jesus, which explains its milding effect. Pilate is promptly arrested, sentenced to a disgraceful death, but the wily procurator beats his executioners to the punch, stabbing himself to death with a hidden dagger in his cell. The Romans tie Pilate's body to a giant boulder and hurl it into the Tiber River. But it's no good, according to the text, and I'm quoting here, malignant and filthy spirits in his malignant and filthy body, all rejoicing together, kept moving themselves in the waters, and in a terrible manner brought lightnings and tempests, thunders and hailstorms in the air, so that all people were kept in horrible fear. Uh, what are they rejoicing for? The dude is dead. The Romans weren't having this, so they moved the pestiferous demonic corpse to Vian in Gaul and dumped the body into the Rhone River. I guess he really needs to be cleaned off, I don't know. But the same trouble ensues, all these demons and stuff. So they move the body once more to Lausanne in the Swiss Alps and inter the body deep inside a mountain well. It still keeps bubbling up ghostly gases or something. That's the way the story goes. This story not only shows us how Christians can imagine Pilate as a member of the demonic powers that dominate the world in the shadows, or from the well, it also replicates and even intensifies the opposition between good governors and evil principalities we saw in John. Only time, Pilate isn't an example of good government subverted by demonic adversaries, but he himself is one of the demonic adversaries, while the emperor Tiberius exemplifies a morally centered political leader. Which, by the way, is an idea not exactly shared in some of the more famous Roman historical accounts of Tiberius' reign. All this is to say that Satan and his underlings do a strange dance with governments, kingdoms, and empires in Christian thought. Sometimes the devils and the kings are one and the same, and sometimes the rulers are being sabotaged by demonic middle managers. But this takes us to next time, next episode, we get a vision of the Roman Empire that is thoroughly demonized. No qualifications here in the book of Revelation. Thanks for listening. You'll hear from us soon. And please do remember to rate, review, subscribe, all those things. And hit us up over email at our address, 7h10hpod at gmail.com. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. 
Thank you.